Hello everybody, this is Dan Woods here at the RSA 2019 conference. We're sitting right off the show floor and I'm with Carolyn Crandall, the Chief Deception Officer of Ativo Networks. Today we're going to talk about the questions we've been asking everybody here and also to get started I'd like uh, Carolyn to explain her job and to explain what Ativo Networks does so we know where she's coming from. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. So I am Carolyn Crandall. I am the Chief Deception Officer of Ativo, and a lot of people go, wow, that's one of the coolest titles, and it, it, it is. Um, the neat thing about this is that the deception marketplace is one that needs a lot of education, and so that's what I spend a lot of my time doing is helping evangelize for the technology and educate the market on why deception technology is of high value for better detection and better investigation and response to attacks. How would you describe deception technology just to the, to the uh, uh, newcomer? Yep, uh, great question. So deception technology, just like you've used in uh, military, law enforcement, sports, gambling, it is a way of outmaneuvering your adversary. And the way we apply this in cyber deception is, is that we put a variety of network endpoint application data, database type deceptions into the network. And so what you're doing is, is creating a, a minefield inside of the network so that as the attacker attempts to uh, do reconnaissance, they attempt to harvest credentials, they attempt to steal data, you get a lot of insight. So first, a very high fidelity alert because we detect them as soon as they uh, engage with the decoy um, or attempt to use a deception credential or lure. You get a very high fidelity alert that makes it very actionable for the responder to respond. Um, it's unlike a lot of other technologies that are trying to pattern match or guess. This is, you know, the attacker gets tricked, right? They can't tell real from fake and they get tricked into engaging. And then we can say somebody is doing something they shouldn't inside the network, whether it's malicious activity or maybe it's just a policy violation of an employee. And so the idea is that if anybody touches a decoy, you know that they're a, a problematic actor or there's some big mistake happening. Right, it's, it's typically either, yes, malicious, it's a policy violation, or sometimes it's even a system configuration issue that is causing engagement with our environment. But nonetheless, that would also be something that you would want to investigate immediately because it's an exposure the attacker would exploit as well. Excellent. So the, I have three questions that uh, I'm asking everybody, and the first one has to do with the whole idea of zero trust. And so if you think of the, the idea of zero trust, some of the assumptions underneath it are really powerful and important. You know, the idea uh, uh, that we really no longer can assume that inside of our perimeters we have a zone of safety. You know, that, that's a very important concept. And then um, that, you know, the idea is that even if we could assume that, we have people who are going to be moving outside of that zone of safety to access important systems from, you know, the, the, the public internet. Yep. And, and that's an inevitable thing that's happening. And then finally, you know, that they're going to be accessing systems inside of our infrastructure, but also accessing systems in the cloud. And we want to make sure that when they do that, everything is secure. So uh, zero trust has sort of come to mean a lot of those things. But if you look at, you know, where it, it started and, you know, Google's thinking about this when and they did the Beyond Core architecture for their own cybersecurity, they implemented protection using these ideas, using a whole custom stack mm -hmm. you know, of technology. And it's impossible to actually buy that stack from any vendor. <laughs> but yeah. the question is, what can you actually do as a normal CISO to, to 
react to the assumptions behind zero trust? You know, what, what is it sh that you should be doing? Should you just be focusing on improving authentication? Should you be, you know, uh, improving your operational discipline? Should you be using cloud gateways? And, and that, I think that's the real interesting question is, how can you make zero trust something meaningful to you as a CISO that you can actually do something about? Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, I boil it down to an it's an it depends answer, and I would roll back to every company should have a security framework, and it could be something following a, a NIST or ISO or a MITRE ATT&CK framework or other things that they may follow um, around their process and policies for security, and I think by mapping what you currently do today, your processes, um, you know, your environments, what you've got connected to the internet and your risk models, then you start to understand what you have in your security stack and you start to understand where some of your gaps and holes are in the security stack. So it's very easy to have a, say, let's have a zero trust model, but then as you said, you go to try to put it into implementation and you realize that you probably don't have the money or resources to do everything that needs to be done, especially all at once. So by looking at your framework, mapping your risk models, mapping your tools, you'll be able to get more insight into into the things that you need. And it's, it's one of the things that I like about the deception technology is a lot of people look at it as IT asset management, but if you take a step back and you use it for expanding into new environments, like you mentioned, cloud environments, or with IoT devices connected to the internet, or taking extreme views of the world saying everything's either the cloud or the endpoint, how does that security framework change? Do you have the right controls? Do you have the right detections for things that either bypass or when those security controls just don't work the way they're supposed to? And so by having that that as, as much of a zero trust model as you can have, but then putting in other tools to detect when they don't work or a check and balance to those systems or a wrapper around things that maybe you can't get quite the risk profile that you want will allow people to still operate their business at the speed they want to without so, falling behind. So the implication of that seems to be that like there's you can imagine a world of unlimited controls in, in which you can really, you know, protect everything that, that could possibly protect it. And you know, if you could possibly make that work and still enable all business activity, that would be a great thing. But sure. <laughs> but but it's 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 unlikely that you'll be able to you know do that without some custom implementation like you know Google did or something like that. So what you can do, however, is use the framework that you have mm -hmm. to create a, a perspective about what's the most important thing we can do and what is our to-do list. You can start doing the top of the to-do list as soon as possible. You know you know implementing things that would qualify as zero trust capabilities, but then you can put in detective capabilities, like you're saying, like deception, yeah. so that you know if, if there, there is any uh, leakage, you yes. know, about if there's any uh, things that you're trusting too much that are actually causing problems. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, it's in the typical security stack, there's not a lot of that check and balance, and so that's what makes people hesitate, going, okay, if I take a cloud shared security model, that's different for me. My normal processes and tools may or may not work. As I take, say, something like a medical device that was never meant to be 
connected to the internet or air-gapped, but now with information sharing and people want access to the information and data about themselves as, long, as well as the um, physicians and the doctors. And so um, how do you change or alter your models? And it's going to have you open up things where sometimes the innovation to do that is going to outpace the security models. And so how do you put another layer of defense behind it to say, let's open it up, but let's, let's put that safety net there that says, well, how do I know? And how do I know very accurately and quickly if that's not working? Well, I think that, and, and, like, one of the people I talked to said, you know, zero trust, once you start really applying it, you should apply it everywhere. It just shouldn't be about the user. It just shouldn't be about the device. It should be about everything. I shouldn't trust my servers. I should assume they're infected. But I just, it just occurred to me when talking to you that you also shouldn't trust your cybersecurity. You know, yeah. you, sh you shouldn't trust that it's working either. You should, yeah. you should have uh, mechanisms that balance it and make it more effective. No, absolutely, especially when you put in DevOps and other, and you got supply chain, whether they're software physical or the chain itself, there's there's lots of things that can happen where you've perfected everything around it and something that you're not expecting puts a chink in the armor. And that's what the attacker is looking for, is to exploit that, even when you think you've got everything else buttoned up. Beautiful. Now, the next question I have is about uh, portfolio pruning. And it seems like we've been in this long, um, progression of development of cybersecurity, where the cybersecurity uh, portfolio has grown and grown and grown. Each show we have new capabilities, uh, and we never seem to get a smaller cybersecurity footprint. Now, that's okay because our attack surface keeps growing. And so, it, you know, when you have new devices in the IoT, when you have more mobile devices being used in many places when you have cloud assets. It's of course rational that you would have more cybersecurity you know, to protect all of them. But at some point, it seems also rational that we would be able to have some sort of pruning. By pruning, I mean reduction in complexity, reduction in number of vendors, reduction in number of capabilities, so that a smaller set of capabilities delivers the outcome that you're interested in. But we just haven't seemed to get there. And why do you think that is? Wow, yeah, I mean, you look on the floor here and there's over 700 different vendors that are all trying to pitch their solutions and wares to solve the security problem. And, and boy, how you consolidate it is a challenge because everybody does something a little differently. Some people do the same things, but just a little bit better. Um, but I think what people need to start thinking about is when is their, their focus on the perimeter and prevention good enough? And when do they start to balance their portfolio and saying, however they get in, attackers can and will get into the network. So have they made the proper inv investments into their detection capabilities and into their response capabilities? And then looking at the, cho the tools they choose to use and how well they share information and how well they allow you to automate the processes and as you mentioned before how well do they scale across these different attack surfaces you don't want different systems for your user networks your data centers your cloud environments your remote offices because that will just overwhelm you and your security teams with the amount of energy that has to be applied in not only managing and keeping these systems up to date but also analyzing and diagnosing everything that you gather during an attack. And so I definitely see a big focus um, behind information sharing and more integration and as much as possible trying to get towards automation with the hesitation that we don't want to automate anything that we're not fully confident in. And so I think that what the vendors on the show floor need to look at is, is 
well, how well do you play with others and how well do you work together with, with other companies to make it easier on the security teams to consolidate and that everybody shouldn't be trying to have their own dashboards and complete resolution to the problem, but if somebody is operating a SOC, how well can you integrate into those SOC tools? How well when they kind of exhaust the looking at what's in the SOC tool, can then they come back to your UI and drill down as deep as they need to go to, to confidently act on the, the attack? And, and it's a little bit of a different way of looking at the whole response process, but I think for the larger organizations, that's what they're looking for. And then the smaller organizations may need something a little bit smaller, more turnkey. But that's just a, more of a focus on ease of use and simple, you know, simple response. So the idea is that how can you support, uh, you know, the the uh, incident response analysis cycle, you know, in a seamless way? How can your integrations make things simpler? So yeah, the prunings that I've seen that have are taking place are prunings of replacing multiple instances of one capability with one instance. So yes. like I have four web application firewalls, well let's just use one. Yes. And also of re reducing the number of vendors. I have you know seven vendors for this, well now I can use a consolidated capability that it gives me good enough in, 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 in a variety of things. Uh, and then and then you know I, I can make up for anything that, that isn't good enough by other measures. Right, and the, the thing to be careful though is to not squash the, the security innovation that you need because a lot of times why you see so many of these small startups is, is that, that we're solving a problem that the big vendors haven't solved. Right, so if you say I'm only going to go with this one company's infrastructure, then you may find that you're not getting the most latest uh, and greatest in technology innovation. And so uh, it's tough. I think the, the smaller vendors need to think through how they incorporate in with the bigger vendors' technologies to try to make it seamless. And the CISOs and security teams that are out there have to keep a certain amount carved out for innovation, right? Don't just expect it to come from the big vendors, but look to some of the smaller vendors to fill those holes, those gaps, but um, do it in a way that's not disruptive or too draining to their to their teams. Um, now I look at that with, with what we do at Ativo Networks, we have over 30 native integrations to automate the attack analysis and, and the blocking quarantine and isolation along with threat hunting of, of the attacks. And we did that intentionally so that we would become more of a force multiplier on what they, they already have versus coming in and saying, let me go replace your major firewall or something else you have in your stack because, like you said, they want to consolidate and keep the core processes together, but now we can do something they don't but feed into that, you know, feed into that environment. How do you, the third question I have is about cloud migration, you know, and, and uh, Part of that question is, you know, what sort of cybersecurity, you know, uh, belongs in the cloud, uh, and then part of it because the bulk of cybersecurity spending is still on on-premise systems, and then the the second part of it is, uh, how can uh, CISOs support the migration to the cloud in a in a way that preserves safety uh, and uh, and also doesn't create yet another increasing complexity for the cybersecurity environment. Yeah. It's uh, almost every CISO that I talk to now is either in the process or is planning to move to the cloud in, in some way. And I think it's it's coming because if you want to stay competitive and get the uh, you know economics and the flexibility of the cloud, you're going to have to select things to move, move over to the cloud. Um, on the security model piece, it is different, right? Your whole way you've segmenting what you put there, um, protecting your data is um, is all very different. 
And so what I think people need to do is, is to look at it and say, well, what is the architecture they're going to use in the cloud? And whether you choose, you know, AWS, Azure, Google, you know, Oracle, it doesn't matter as much. Um, they all have their own naming uh, nomenclature for each, but, but the functions are very simple. And to look at what those security risks are in those different models and go, what if you're even looking at it in a um, you know an environment where you've got like serverless technologies and you've got dynamic environments that maybe the things you were doing before aren't going to work and so you have to look at some different controls and processes and you also need to have those checks and balances we talked about before that even if your your cloud provider is offering you security, how do you have the check and balance if their controls don't work as they should? Right. Or maybe it's an accidental misconfiguration or misuse, or there's a lot of um, DevOps tools that come into play. What if they get exploited? And so you need to kind of take a step back too and assume that not you know even their side of the shared security model may not work exactly as it should. So. How do you protect yourself against that? And then how do you fully own your part of the equation and making sure that you have the right prevention, detection, um, and ability to respond to those incidents as they happen? Got it. Now I have three bonus questions that we can ask quickly. Um, one is about ops discipline. Um, it seems to me it would be uh, a great benefit to most organizations if they invested in increasing their operational discipline and you know capabilities rather than buying yet another cybersecurity component. Uh, and what I mean by that is CISOs should ask themselves how much more progress could we make in configuration management, patch management, uh, inventory uh, and asset inventory uh, capabilities, automation, mm -hmm. so that we can express our intent of what we want our environment to do and have it you know automatically sort of uh, uh, configured to do that. And that provides a huge amount of cybersecurity benefits. In addition, so does things like improving your backup configuration, so you have a much more rapid uh, uh, backup cycles and rapid recovery cycles. Those are also have cybersecurity impact. Yes. And uh, yet, as, as much as that makes sense to everybody, it's not something that's easily uh, put on the agenda. You know, and, and it seems like CISOs often, well, they just end up buying that extra cybersecurity component instead of focusing on this. Why do you think it's so hard to 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 you know maintain a focus on you know improving and expanding operational discipline? Well, changing operational processes and and approaches to things is is hard, right? You know it. It takes time, and many times it's a cross-functional activity, which that additional collaboration can be complicated in many ways. And so sometimes it may seem like the path of least resistance is throw more technology at it, right? So instead of figuring out the, the fundamental issues, and that doesn't help because then you end up with a bunch of technology that's all siloed and maybe maybe some of it becomes shelfware because it doesn't do what you thought it was going to do. And maybe you still needed to make those processes um, work better before that technology could even be effective. And so I do think, and I'll go back to the security frameworks, I think really taking a look at what framework you're using, whether it's one of the known ones like NIST or one, something you create on your own, is going to be very valuable for taking a look at both the processes and the tools that you have in order to see how these things work together and interrelate. And I think going through that process can be so valuable for an organization to really understand first, you know, kind of the, the measure twice, cut once on things um, before they make, you know, make these investments. 
Um, you know, I'm always one for creativity. I carve out a certain amount of my budget for just experimental things. For like, let's just try something new and different. But that's a little different than what I'm doing in my core production area. I should have that as a plan that's very controlled and, and um, you know, is incorporated into a framework or a plan, but then still keep the innovation coming in because sometimes there are surprises inside of that that you go, wow, I thought my process should work this way, but when in reality I bring these other tools in, I just was able to automate or get a better detection or, or and get better investigation or faster, you know, whatever the, the situation may be. So it, it is a balance, but I think if you start with that framework first, you'll improve your processes, your purchases will make more sense of how they fit into that and hopefully you'll have less, you know, less inefficiency in the model or, or risk. Um, the second question, the second of our bonus questions is about uh, cyber culture. You know, it, cybersecurity culture. Uh, it seems to be again, something that is really hard to do, which is to create and maintain a culture of cybersecurity awareness. What do you, what do you, have you seen the, the, the organizations that are really good at doing this do? Yeah, it's, it's hard. You know what, we're human and we, you know, most of us try to please, right? We want to do the right things, we want to help people out, and so we're looking as we're looking at email and other things to try to do the right thing. And in that quest, people are going to make mistakes and so you know organizations need to continue to do a lot of the security training do phishing testing runs to try to get people to fall for it and you know i think people when they make mistakes learn and, and you know those mistakes are the best way for them to know hey now i was caught once i'm not going to click on that email again or i'm going to be more aware of of the environment but it is a balance there's definitely ongoing continuous testing, management, um, education of people, but there's also the reality that we are all human and so we are going to make mistakes. So the companies need to put the right checks and balances into place too, going, that is going to happen and people are not necessarily bad for making those mistakes, but um, but it's going to happen and we need to put the checks and balances so when that does happen that there's no material impact to the company. But I'd say educate, test, educate some more and test, you know, test some more. Got it. And then finally, uh, I have, I've run into a lot of uh, CISOs who are frustrated because they're being forced essentially by their CEOs or CFOs to buy cybersecurity insurance. And the, uh, they, they don't like the idea of buying it because it's a very young insurance product. It doesn't often uh, uh, have a clear uh, set of benefits that it's going to pay for. The coverage is highly contingent on lots of different uh, uh, factors and there's many escape hatches for paying and then what he what it even pays for and it's stated coverage isn't always you know the the first party loss it's often just the legal expenses or the forensic expenses or some other you know not even you know not business continuity you know disruption or anything and so but very few CISOs I've or CIOs or CTOs I've talked to have been successful in arguing against it so how can we uh, turn this discussion into something that is beneficial? Well, I, I think it's the way that people look at it. I mean, we look at things like extended warranties and go, I don't really want that. I'll take my chances and we have a choice in an extended warranty whether we purchase it or not. Or then we can look at it in the side of almost like car insurance, right? We all hate paying our premiums on insurance, but when we have it, 
and it comes time when we need it, it's it's a good thing we do have it. And so it's it's always hard. Nobody wants to pay for insurance, but and, and there's always carve outs and things that you're going to have to address. But I think if you can put things in place where where you understand your premiums, you understand not only for the insurance purposes, but there's a lot of states looking at their own legislation and other things that say, if you don't adhere to at least these forms of frameworks, then, you know, you, you know, A, you'll be more liable or maybe you get um, less liability by adhering to those things. And so it's not an easy answer. It's actually a pretty complex process of understanding what insurance, what company, what premium levels, what qualifications you need to have. But in the end, I think it's just like car insurance. You, you're going to need to have it. Right. Um, and, but not rely on it, right? You know, so do the right things regardless. Try to stay away from the situation of uh, ever needing to have it. And then really understand what it does and what it doesn't cover so that if you do end up in that situation, you're not frustrated or surprised by it. You know what to expect and where you've left your risks or exposures open. Well, what, uh, what, how do you think you can use the process to actually you know, improve your game? A lot of times the, the insurance companies are putting things in place now that require you to do specific things as part of the premium and policy. And if you don't do those things, then it impacts either what you pay or what they may pay out. And so, you know, it's like compliance. You never want to run your business off of compliance. So it's, it's a checklist that you should look against. But to really have the adequate security level against today's advanced attackers, you really should be looking at it more on your own business risk model and what you're willing to take, how critical is the data, what's the exposure to your brand if it gets out, what's the repercussions in lost business if it gets out, um, you know, or even situations, what could be the harm to public safety if you don't do. It should never be, like I said, just because of compliance or insurance, it should be viewed as more as a checklist. If we've surpassed that, now let's go and see if our risk model requires us to do even more things and then have that as your framework and bar that you set to versus just because the insurance company said you need to do this. Well, Carolyn, this has been a fun conversation. I hope you have a great show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on.